Part One, Chapter One of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten. Ingersoll's Address to the Jury in the Munn Trial, Part One of Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Part One article printed in the times chicago illinois may twenty third eighteen seventy six the united states versus daniel w munn deputy supervisor of internal revenue who was indicted under section five four four zero of the revised statutes of the united states there was an unusual rush to obtain admission to the united states district courtroom yesterday to listen to the closing arguments of counsel in the munn whiskey conspiracy trial which has attracted so much attention during the past ten days the stalwart deputy who guards the entrance to this judicial precinct was compelled to employ his entire strength and power of persuasion to keep the eager anxious crowd from trespassing on the convenience and dignity of the court about ten o'clock the court took the bench and colonel ingersoll walked into the room took off a broad-brimmed felt hat which gives the barrister while he has it on somewhat the appearance of a full-grown well-developed quaker in good standing in the society to which he belongs when he has the hat removed however the counsellor's appearance undergoes a marked change he then looks like a crop-haired follower of the house of montague in the shakespearean play he sat down on a crazy old chair which threatened every moment to break down beneath his weight and listened to the remarks of judge doolittle for the remainder of the morning until it came his time to talk colonel ingersoll never troubles himself to take notes of anything what he cannot recollect he does not have any use for judge doolittle occupied the morning session until the time for adjournment at one o'clock with a review of the case on the side of the defence he was followed by mr ingersoll in the afternoon at two o'clock the court-room was more crowded than before and at that hour mr ingersoll appeared in the forum and delivered his speech in behalf of the defendant if the court please and the gentlemen of the jury out of an abundance of caution and as it were an extravagance of prudence i propose to make a few remarks to you in this case the evidence has been gone over by my associates and arguments have been submitted to you which in my judgment are perfectly convincing as far as the innocence of this defendant is concerned i am aware however that there is a prejudice against a case of this character i am aware that there is a prejudice against any man engaged in the manufacture of alcohol i know there is a prejudice against a case of this kind and there is a very good reason for it i believe to a certain degree with the district attorney in this case who has said that every man who makes whiskey is demoralized i believe gentlemen to a certain degree it demoralizes those who make it those who sell it and those who drink it i believe from the time it issues from the coiled and poisonous worm of the distillery until it empties into the hell of crime dishonor and death that it demoralizes everybody that touches it i do not believe anybody can contemplate the subject without becoming prejudiced against this liquid crime 
all we have to do gentlemen is to think of the wrecks upon either bank of the stream of death of the suicides of the insanity of the poverty of the ignorance of the distress of the little children tugging at the faded dresses of weeping and despairing wives asking for bread and of the men of genius it has wrecked the millions struggling with imaginary serpents produced by this devilish thing and when you think of the jails of the almshouses of the asylums of the prisons of the scaffolds upon either bank i do not wonder that every thoughtful man is prejudiced against the damned stuff called alcohol and i know that we to a certain degree have to fight that prejudice in this case and so i say for this reason among others i deem it proper that i should submit to you gentlemen the ideas that occur to my mind upon this subject it may be proper for me to say here that i thank you one and all for the patience you have shown during this trial you have patiently heard this testimony you have patiently given your attention i believe to every word that has fallen from the lips of these witnesses and for one i am grateful to you for it now gentlemen understanding that there is this prejudice knowing at the time the case commenced that it existed i asked each one of you if there was any prejudice in your minds which in your judgment would prevent you from giving a fair and candid verdict in this case and you all honestly i know replied that there was not the district attorney judge bangs stated to you in the opening of this case for the purpose of preparing your minds for the examination of this testimony that you must first of all divest your minds of sympathy i do not say that gentlemen neither would i say it were i the attorney of the government of the united states but i do say this divest yourself of prejudice if you have it but do not gentlemen divest yourself of sympathy what is the great distinguishing characteristic of man what is it that distinguishes you and me from the lower animals from the beasts more i say than anything else human sympathy human sympathy were it not for sympathy gentlemen the idea of justice never would have entered the human brain this thing called sympathy is the mother of justice and although justice has been painted blind never has she been represented as heartless until so represented by the district attorney in this case i tell you there is no more sacred no more holy and no purer thing than what you and i call sympathy and the man who is unsympathetic is not a man gentlemen the white breast of the lily is filthy as compared to the human heart perfumed with love and sympathy i do not want you to divest yourself of sympathy neither do i want you to try the case entirely upon sympathy but i want you sympathetic enough to put yourselves honestly in the place of this defendant now gentlemen as a matter of fact this case resolves itself into simply one point all the rest is nothing all the rest is the merest fog that can be brushed from the mind with a wave of the hand and it is all resolved down to simply one point and that is is jacob rem worthy of credit has jacob rem told against this defendant a true story now that is all there is in this case 
the other points that they raise and which i shall allude to before i get through are valuable only as they cast a certain amount of suspicion upon the defendant but the real point is and the attorneys for the government know it is mr jacob rim's story worthy of credit did he tell the truth judge banks felt that was the only question and for that reason in advance he defended the reputation of jacob rem for truth and veracity and he made to the jury this remarkable statement quote, the reputation of jacob rem for truth and veracity is good it spreads all over the city of chicago like sunlight End quote. that was the statement made by the district attorney of the united states i do not believe that he would swear to that part of his speech it was an insult to every person on this jury it was an insult to this court it was an insult to the intelligence of every bystander that the reputation of jacob rem spread like sunlight all over the city of chicago my god what kind of a sunlight do you mean think of it now then gentlemen he knew it was necessary to defend the character of mr rem he knew it was necessary to defend that statement he knew that the testimony of mr rem was the only nail upon which the jury could possibly hang the verdict of guilty in this case and now i propose to examine a little the testimony of mr jacob rem i believe it was stated by judge banks that one of the best tests of truth was that a lie was at war with all the facts in the universe and that every fact standing as it were on guard was a member of the police of the universe to arrest all lies let me state another truth every fact in the universe will fit every other fact in the universe a lie never did never will fit anything but another lie made to fit it never never a lie is unnatural a lie in the nature of things is a monstrosity a lie is no part of the great circle including the universe within its grasp and consequently as i said before will fit nothing except another lie now then to examine the testimony of a witness you examine into its naturalness into its probability because you expect another man to act something the same as you would under the same circumstances we have no other way to judge other people except by our own experience and an authenticated record of the experience of others consequently when a man is telling a story you have to apply to it the test of your own experience and as i say the recorded tests of other honest men now let us suppose just for a moment that the testimony of mr jacob rem is true let us suppose it it has been stated to you and admirably stated by judge doolittle admirably stated that it was the height of absurdity to suppose that a man would do as he did for nothing but let me put it in another light somewhat according to the testimony of mr jacob rem he first tried to stop this stealing nobody offered him any money to stop it but he simply went to the collector Irwin, and said they were stealing and that it must be stopped and thereupon collector Irwin changed the gaugers for the purpose of stopping the stealing 
a few days thereafter somebody came to him and wanted the stealing to commence and he told them that they would have to pay for it and the amount they would have to pay for it and then he went to collector irwin whom he supposed at that time to be a perfectly honest and upright man and told him in short that they wanted to steal and would give five hundred dollars a month irwin said go ahead he admits that they did steal he admits that they made a bargain with him he admits that that happened and he assigns all these gaugers and storekeepers he admits that he did that for two years he admits that he received at least one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of this money he admits that in order to carry out this scheme he knew that every distiller would have to sign a lie every time he made a report to the government he admits that he knew every gauger would have to swear to the lie at the end of every month in his report of the transactions of each day he admits that every storekeeper would be guilty of perjury every time he made a report he admits that he knew that the thing that he was committing for two years was a daily penitentiary offense he admits that he put himself in the power of all these gaugers and all these storekeepers and all these distillers and rectifiers put it in their power to have him arrested for a penitentiary offense at any moment during the whole two years and yet he tells you that he did this absolutely for nothing he tells you every cent he received he divided and paid over and that he never kept a solitary dollar except it may be for a box of cigars i want the attorney for the government to tell this jury that he believes that story and if he does tell you so gentlemen i will give you notice now that you need not believe any other word mr ayer says if he says he believes that now then what more he knew that all these men were committing these penitentiary offenses and that he was putting himself in the power of all these men and what was his motive what gentleman was his object it is impossible for me to imagine if he got no money if he made nothing out of this transaction it is impossible for me to imagine why he embarked in such a course of crime why then did he say to you gentlemen that he paid all this money over it was to build up a reputation with you it was to make you think that whereas he paid this all over that whereas he did all this business simply to accommodate his friends that he was worthy of credit in his statement of this case he told you that he did not keep a dollar simply to make a reputation with you what did he want a reputation with you for so that he would be believed and what did he want to be believed for so that he could send munn to the penitentiary and as the price of munn's incarceration get his own liberty that is the reason he swore it and there is no other reason in the world is it probable that a man would commit all these crimes for nothing is it possible that he would hire and bribe other men to commit these crimes for nothing i ask you i ask your common sense i appeal to your brains is it probable that he would do all that absolutely for nothing is it probable that he would lay himself liable to the penitentiary every hour in the day for two years for nothing 
there is and can be but one answer to such a question as that why gentlemen if his statement is true that he did all this for nothing he is the most disinterested villain the most self-sacrificing and self-denying thief of which the history of the world gives any record is it possible is it possible i say that a man would make himself the sewer of all the official rot in this city in which was deposited the excrement of frauds is it possible he would turn himself into a scavenger cart into which should be thrown all the moral offal of the city of chicago for nothing whoever answers that question in the affirmative is in my judgment an idiot nobody can nobody has a mind so constructed that it can lodge an affirmative answer to that question within its brain what next he tells you that munn was in this plot and that he mr rem at the same time was selling protection to these distillers no distillers and you know it would have given him ten dollars a barrel unless they expected protection he then was engaged in the sale of protection was he not did you ever know of a vendor crying down his own wares did you ever hear of a merchant crying down the quality of the cloth he wished to sell did you ever hear of a grocery man endeavoring to cry down that which he wished you to buy jacob rem was selling protection at ten dollars a barrel and sometimes asking twelve dollars and fifty cents was it not natural for him to endeavor to convince distillers that he had plenty of protection to sell was it not natural for him to make the distillers believe if you will give me ten dollars a barrel you will have perfect protection would it be natural for him to say i will protect you for ten dollars a barrel and yet i have none of the officers in my pay they would say what kind of protection have you got sir would it not be natural for him to make out his protection as good as he possibly could would it not be natural for him to tell you i have got all these officers on my side from the lowest gauger to the gentleman who presides over the internal revenue department at the city of washington the more protection he had the more money he could get and consequently it would not be natural for him to cry down his own protection if mr munn was in it and if mr munn at that time was the superior officer of the collector and this man had protection to sell would he not have said that munn was also in the ring when he was trying to sell protection to george burroughs at ten dollars a barrel george burroughs asked him if munn was in the ring and he said he was not if mr munn had been why didn't he say that munn was for the reason that that would make his protection appear to be of a better quality and he could have sold it at a better price but he said no and that they did not need him because they could manage him and fool him through this man bridges and you will recollect that bridges was appointed directly by the government and not by munn and bridges reported directly to the government and not to munn he had nothing to do with him one way or the other except that they were both in the revenue department now i say if it is possible that a man can cry down his own wares that he wishes to sell then you may say that the statement of rem is natural 
now gentlemen why should rem inform burroughs that munn was about to make a visit here in order that burroughs might have an opportunity to have his house put in order why should he have sent notices to other distillers that munn was coming why should he tell them to put their houses in order so as to be ready for a visit from mr munn it may be that the counsel for the government will say this shows the infinite fidelity of this infinite rascal now i will come to this part of my argument again but the next thing i will speak of is rem's story where he says that he actually paid the money to munn himself and if there is anything left out of that after i get through with it you are at perfect liberty to find the defendant guilty you must recollect that rem had a bargain now according to his story he paid this money to bridges you must recollect according to his story that munn at that time was one of the conspirators had been receiving money a half of thirty five thousand dollars or forty five thousand dollars having gone into his pocket recollect that he goes over one day to the rectifying house of roel and junker and there are some barrels found and stamps of which had not been scratched mr munn was assured by roel that there was no fraud roel still swears that there was no fraud he was afterward assured by junker that there was no fraud junker still swears that there was no fraud now what does rem come in to swear rem says that bridges came to him and told him that munn was going to make trouble going to make trouble about these barrels that had the stamps on that were not scratched off why did not rem say to him how is he going to make a fuss he has got twenty thousand dollars of money already he is in the conspiracy he is a nice man to make a fuss what is he going to make a fuss about would it not have been just as likely that mr bridges should have made a fuss as that munn should have made it bridges according to the testimony of your immaculate witness was in this no more than munn not one particle and why was munn going to make trouble mr rem has endeavored to answer that question mr rem then goes to munn sent there by bridges it would be very hard to find out why he did not give the money to bridges but he went to munn and says you are going to make some trouble about what you found at roll and junkers yes why because he says the men at work there the persons employed there will make a fuss about it but they will see it and say that it is overlooked now that is the reason that rem puts in the mouth of the defendant afterward he goes himself to junker and advises him to give munn five hundred dollars and junker proposes one thousand dollars and gives rem one thousand dollars and then he sends for munn and he comes to his office and wren hands munn one thousand dollars now gentlemen the reason munn gave was that the men there would notice it and make a disturbance about it well then why not pay the men what is the use of paying munn if this was done to prevent the men working at the rectifying house from making trouble why not pay the men why not pay the men who were going to make the trouble 
why give an extra thousand dollars to a conspirator to whom you have already given twenty thousand dollars and who at that time according to the testimony of rem was officially rotten why not give the money to men who were going to make the trouble and the next question is this and if you will recollect the testimony of roel he swears that when the defendant came to the rectifying house he roel was alone he swears that he was alone he swears that all the rest had gone to dinner and according to roel's testimony there was nobody there but himself where were the men that were going to make this disturbance where were the men that were going to notice this oversight where were the men that were going to stir up difficulties at washington or any other place according to the testimony of roel those people were at dinner and where gentlemen is the philosophy of that lie which they have told where is it why should he have paid mun money why didn't he pay it to bridges if it was for the purpose of stopping the men from making trouble why not pay it to the men they wished to stop i asked the gentleman to answer that question i asked the gentleman to tell us what men were in danger of making this trouble was it the gauger who received six hundred dollars a month for being a liar and a thief was it the bookkeeper who every report that he made swore to a lie was there any danger of these liars and of these thieves making a fuss on their own account was there any danger of that gauger stopping his own pay was there any danger of that bookkeeper trying to throw himself out of employment was there any danger of any thief or of any conspirator saying anything calculated to bring this rascality to the surface if a bribed gauger would not tell it if a bribed bookkeeper would not tell it i asked the attorney-general for the government would mun tell it who had received according to your evidence over twenty thousand dollars of fraudulent money was there any danger of mun turning state's evidence against himself was there not just as much danger of bridges making a fuss as mun was there not according to their testimony the same danger of rem himself going to washington as there would be of a bribed gauger and of a lying bookkeeper gentlemen your story won't hang together there is no philosophy in it and it will not fit anything except another lie made on purpose to fit it and it has got to be made by a better mechanic than jacob rem now then gentlemen what more the district attorney told you and i was astonished when he told it i was astonished he said that the testimony of jacob rem was not impeached that on the contrary it was sustained by these other witnesses had he made such a statement under oath i am afraid an indictment for perjury would lie he said that the testimony had been sustained rather than impeached how sustained mr rem did you ever give mr burroughs notice that mr munn was coming in order that he might put his house in order mr rem says no we then asked mr burroughs did mr rem ever give you such notice and he corroborates mr rem by saying yes if that is what you call corroboration did you tell mr hessing that munn was not in it i did not mr hessing did mr rem tell you that munn was not in it he did 
that is another instance of the attorney's idea of corroboration did you tell hessing that hoyt was innocent i did not mr hessing did mr rem tell you that hoyt was innocent he did another corroboration did you tell him that munn never was in it that munn was innocent no we then asked him did he tell you that he did we say to burroughs in eighteen seventy four in eighteen seventy three in eighteen seventy two did rem tell you that munn was not in it he did that is another idea i suppose of corroboration question mr rem how much money did the house of dickinson and leach give you answer twenty five thousand dollars question will you swear they did not give you thirty answer i will mr leach on the stand question how much money did your house give rem answer between forty thousand and fifty thousand dollars another instance of corroboration we then called mr burroughs upon the stand he belonged to the same house question how much money did you give jacob rem answer fifty two thousand dollars another instance of corroboration question mr rem did mr abel ever give you any money answer yes sir how many times answer once how much answer five hundred dollars will you swear it was not a thousand answer yes mr abel takes the stand question did you ever pay jacob rem any money answer yes how often answer once how much answer two thousand dollars and that is another instance of the corroboration of jacob rem and when a man is thus corroborated gentlemen his reputation for truth and veracity spreads like sunlight all over the city of chicago there was not a circumstance there was not a statement made by mr rem except it was made in the presence of bridges who is in canada of Irwin, who is in his grave, or in the presence of the defendant, who stands here with his mouth closed, not one solitary circumstance, with those exceptions, that has not been contradicted. Can you believe this man? Can you believe this man who has been contradicted by every one brought upon the stand? Can you take his word after he has sworn as he has? I tell you, gentlemen, you cannot do it and as judge doolittle told you if there is an infamous crime in the world it is the crime of perjury all the sneaking instincts all the groveling crawling instincts unite and blend in this one crime called perjury it clothes itself gentlemen in the shining vestments of an oath in order that it may tell a lie perjury poisons the wells of truth the sources of justice perjury leaps from the hedges of circumstance from the walls of fact to assassinate justice and innocence perjury is the basest and meanest and most cowardly of crimes what can it do perjury can change the common air that we breathe into the acts of an executioner perjury out of this air can forge manacles for free hands perjury out of a single word can make a hangman's rope and noose perjury out of a word can build a scaffold upon which the great and noble must suffer 
it was told during the middle ages and in the time of the inquisition that the inquisitors had a statue of the virgin mary and when a man was brave enough to think his own thoughts he was brought before this tribunal and before this beautiful statue robed in gorgeous robes and decked with jewels and as a punishment he was made to embrace it the inquisitor touched a hidden spring the arms of the statue clutched the victim and drew him to her breast filled with daggers such gentlemen is perjury and if you take into consideration the evidence of this witness when you retire to the jury-room you in my judgment will commit an outrage every man here should spurn that man from the threshold of his conscience as he would a rabid cur from the threshold of his house is there any safety in the world if you take the testimony of these men especially when character avails nothing is there any safety in human society if you will take the testimony of a perjured man is there any safety in living among mankind if this is the law if the statement of a confessed conspirator makes the character of a great and good man worthless for one i had rather flee to the woods and live with wild beasts and savage nature gentlemen i know that you will pay no attention to that kind of testimony i know it i know that you cannot do it and why you know that that man is swearing a lie for the purpose of protection you know that that man is swearing a lie under the smile of the government of the united states you know it you know he expects a benefit from it you know it when other witnesses burroughs and hessing that swear here understand that they are swearing beneath a frown understand that they know that no mercy will be extended to them by the attorneys that they have offended understand that and when you understand that a man is swearing to protect himself and when he is a man that will swear to a lie for money of course he will swear to a lie to keep himself out of the penitentiary or to shorten his time i say when you know a man is placed in that condition you have no right to give the least weight to his testimony not one particle what more gentlemen why they have another witness and he has sworn nothing he has sworn nothing that has anything to do with this conspiracy one way or the other nothing the only evidence against the defendant i tell you is the evidence of mr jacob rem the defendant gentlemen was an officer of the revenue for several years when he came to chicago in eighteen seventy one the district attorney said the distillers were here in full blast making illicit whiskey if he had read the evidence he knew better if he had not he had no business to make any statement about it in eighteen seventy one when the defendant came here according to the testimony of all these men the distilleries were running straight and the rascality did not commence until the fall of eighteen seventy two when jacob rem sold protection to these distillers the defendant had been here a year before any frauds were committed he was then supervisor of internal revenue up to may eighteen seventy five during that time he did many official acts during that time he wrote hundreds and thousands of letters during that time he made hundreds and hundreds of visits to all these establishments they have searched the records they have had every nook and cranny looked at by a hired detective and all that they can possibly bring forward is the beggarly account presented in this case 
first that there were four or five barrels of rum without the ten-cent stamps and that you know is a thing that ought to send a man to the penitentiary next twenty-five barrels of which the stamps had not been scratched but about which there was no fraud ought a man to be sent to the penitentiary because he does not seize a house when there has been a technical violation without any fraud a supervisor that will do it ought to be kicked out of office he ought to be kicked out of the society of honest and decent men and if this defendant was satisfied from the story of Roel and Junker that there had been no fraud committed by leaving the stamps on the twenty-five barrels unscratched, and had seized that house, that would have been an act of meanness, an act of oppression, which I do not believe even a government attorney would uphold unless he was hired in the case. Now what next did he do? The next thing he did, he went to Golson and Eastman, gentlemen i do not care to speak much of golson if there ever was a man utterly devoid of such a thing as principle if there ever was a man that would read the statute against stealing and stand in perfect amazement that anybody ever thought of making such a statute it certainly must be golson you heard him and he is the man that said he told lies in business he is the man that said he did not think it was wrong to swear lies in business and his business now is to keep out of the penitentiary that is his principal business that is one of the gentlemen they have hired that is one of the gentlemen they have brought forward here to offend the nostrils of decent men now then he went to golson and eastman judge bangs told you in his speech that golson then and there explained his infamy to munn this ends chapter one part one of two